I'm glad you're here this morning as we begin a brand new series. In fact, I'm going to ask you if you turn to Matthew chapter 16, if you have a Bible near you, around you, or turn on your tablet to Matthew 16, oh, scripture only today, okay? Don't be playing games and texting and tweeting and blogging and posting YouTube apps to your Instagram, something or another, whatever the kids do these days. But hey, we'll get there in a second to Matthew 16. We'll put it up in a second for anybody that's too intimidated to turn. But uh, last week, Nick Crawford did a great job, our very own Nick Crawford, closing out our series on Micah 6-8, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And if you were here, didn't you enjoy Nick and appreciate the panelists and what they had to share as they talked about love and unity within our church and uh, peace and prosperity in our city as we seek to minister and walk out uh, the commands of what God says of being salt and light. Loved all the panelists and really appreciate them. Um, especially John Lasseter. Remember John that sat in the middle that, yeah, took shots at the preacher? Uh, not one, but maybe two or three. And uh, the kids were cute, weren't they? John was cute in his own way. But what a great voice. John Maxwell, I see you out there. And John Lasseter is nipping at your heels, brother. What can I say? John, what a great voice he has. I mean, he projects that voice. So next Sunday, we're going to have uh, John Maxwell, who's 70-plus years old, John Lasseter, who's in his 30s. They're going to both come up and read Dr. Seuss. And we're going to just determine who's got the best voice in Fondren Church, okay? We'll get to Matthew 16 in just a minute. We're beginning a new series called Labeled. Years ago, I had been traveling, and I had spoken at a, at a conference with Campus Crusade for Christ way back in the day. And when I was returning, I was entering into a commuter airport and returning a rental car. It was in February. There was an ice storm uh, in Missouri. I got out of the rental car, and the moment I took a couple of steps, I mean, I hit a patch of ice and fell hard. I mean, just fell right back. Now, what happens when that happens? What do you think? What was I thinking on that day? Thank you, God, for this beautiful, gray, blistery sky. Do Do you think, you don't think that, right? You think, am I okay? But what's the number one question that goes through your mind? Did anybody see me, right? We, you're like me, this is good. We really care about what people think, don't we? I was looking around at Kroger this week. Usually she goes there, but I went to Kroger and I was looking around at the magazine racks and just looking at the impulse aisle right there by the register, just all the promises. They're not just magazines. It's a stimuli and promises of if I could buy this product or get this hairstyle, good luck with that, right? Or get these six-pack abs or buy this, try this, travel here, uh, do this in the bedroom, then I would have this kind of life. We really care what people think about us and we wonder if we're missing out or we have all that we need. Go back to the playground. Go back to when you were forced to say one day, I know you are, but what am I? Right? Because you are on that playground and you're, you're with your circle of friends who are slowly, I hate this too as a parent, but slowly those peers on the playground are becoming more important than those old fuddy-duddies at home, right? And you're, 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 you're pursuing athletic goals and academic goals and artistic goals. And maybe there's been moments where you couldn't catch the ball, throw the ball, jump high enough, run far enough or fast enough, and you just didn't, it just didn't seem like you measured up or academically. I mean, you know all the pressure that goes with school these days, right? I'm, I'm just going to admit, for me back in the day, not as much pressure of what they feel today. And maybe I'm all for school, I'm all for education, but it's not everything. Not everything. But people are created differently. 
There's some quote about Albert Einstein when he said, um, you can um, teach a fish to climb or try to teach a fish to climb a tree, you'll judge it, right? And it'll end up spending the rest of its life believing that it's stupid. It's a fish. It's not what it's built to do. And part of our identity is to discover who we are, who you are, and be able to live that out. And some of us spend the rest of our lives feeling stupid because of ways that we don't measure up, of us trying to be somebody that we are not. And then what happens? People call us names. And life can be about disappointment. When we make good things, all the pursuits in life, all the things that we want to do, the, the, the reasons that motivate us to look good in front of everybody, to, to not let people see us fall down and to have everything to keep up, to be the shiniest and the brightest and the best. All of these factors from the playground into our adulthood cause us to pursue things. And when we try to make good things, ultimate things, we realize that we don't measure up. And when we don't measure up, we feel down. Years ago, I read a book called The Life That You've Always Wanted. And in it, the writer says this, I am disappointed in myself. I'm disappointed not so much with particular things I've done as with aspects of who I've become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I wouldn't have minded getting a more muscular physique. I can't do basic home repairs. So far, I haven't shown much financial wizardry. Some of this disappointment is neurotic. Sometimes I'm too concerned about what others think of me, even people I don't know. Some of this dis disappointment I know is worse than trivial. It is simply the sour fruit of self-absorption. I attend a high school reunion and I can't choke back the desire to stand out by looking more attractive or having achieved more impressive accomplishments than my classmates. I speak to someone with whom I want to be charming and my words come out as awkward and pedestrian. I'm disappointed in my ordinariness. But some of this disappointment in myself runs deeper. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create memories of magic. I want them to remember me laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them, to, to them and make the books come alive so that they love to read. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, to have food fights, and hold them and pray with them in a way that makes them feel cherished. I look on them as they sleep at night, and I remember how the day really went. I remember how they were trapped in a fight over checkers and I walked out of the room because I didn't want to spend the energy needed to teach them how to resolve conflict. I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she'd revealed some deep character flaw. I yelled at her even though I spill things all the time and no one yells at me. I yelled at her simply because I'm big and she's little and I can get away with it. And then I saw that look of hurt and confusion in her eyes. And I knew there was a tiny wound on her heart that I had put there. I wish I'd have, I could have taken back those 60 seconds. I remember how at night I didn't have slow, sweet talks, but merely rushed the children to bed so I could have more time to myself. I'm disappointed. And it's not just my life as a father. I'm disappointed also for my life as a husband, friend, neighbor, neighbor and human being in general. I think of the day I was born when I carried the gift of promise, the gift given to all babies. I think of that little baby and what might have been, the ways I might have developed mind, body, and spirit, the thoughts I might have had, the joy I might have created. I'm disappointed that I still love God so little and sin so much. I always had the idea as a child that adults were pretty much the people they wanted to be. 
Yet the truth is I am embarrassingly sinful. I'm capable of dismaying amounts of jealousy if someone succeeds more visibly than I do. I'm disappointed in my capacity to be small and petty. I cannot pray very long without my mind drifting into a fantasy of anger, angry revenge over some past slight I thought I had long since forgiven or some grandiose fantasy of achievement. I can convince people I'm busy and productive and yet waste large amounts of time watching television. These are just some of the disappointments. I have other ones, darker ones, that I'm not yet ready to commit to paper. Truth is, even to write these words is a little misleading because it makes me sound more sensitive to my fallenness than I really am. Sometimes, although I am aware of how far I fall short, it doesn't even bother me very much. And then I'm disappointed in my lack of disappointment. Does that strike a nerve with anyone? When we make good things ultimate things, we don't measure up. And when we don't measure up, we feel down. We label ourselves. This verse that I want us to look at, let's put it up now, Matthew chapter 16. We preached this verse before when we were talking about the church, the universal church, and specifically the local church. But I want to take a different approach as, as this, this narrative defines this series in October. Matthew chapter 16, I believe we're reading verses 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, by the way, Peter always replied, and he was always the first to reply. Anybody here like Peter? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are, by the way, the words that we proclaim in baptism, which we'll be doing again next week. If it's your time to be baptized, this is the next step for you. Let us know this week. We have people say that. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We go on to say, my risen Lord and Savior. Peter didn't say that yet because he wasn't sure about this whole death, resurrection thing. But Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's happened in this story? Jesus and the disciples are with the crowd. Jesus is wondering about his reputation, not worried about his reputation. But he's inquiring, who do people say that I am? And I don't think that's his chief question. Really, the chief question is, who do you say that I am? And according to the disciples, people said what? You, we just read it. They said that you are what? John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, who came right before him. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or you're one of the prophets. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. Peter speaks clearly and definitively on who Jesus is. Peter is clear on who Jesus is. But the question, the idea that I want to frame this whole series is this. Peter was clear on who Jesus is, but was he clear on who he is? And Jesus tells him. 
He doesn't ask him, by the way. He doesn't turn the tables on him. That would have been the natural thing for a lot of us to do, I think, right? Because conversations are sort of democratic. You meet people where they are, tick for tack, yin for yang, that sort of thing. But Jesus doesn't turn the tables. He doesn't say, what do people say about you? He doesn't even think, doesn't say, what do, who do you think you are? He tells him. Because he wants, Jesus wants Peter to be clear on his identity. And he doesn't say you're Peter the fisherman or Peter the sinner or Peter the guy that cuts the ear off the soldier. Or Peter the, the guy that walks out in the boat but gets scared because of the storm. He, he says, he doesn't say Peter you're Simon's brother, the other Simon. He says, this is who you are. You're the rock, you're the Petra, you're the rock. And Jesus invites him in, as he does us, into a story that he is about to build. Something good that Peter is about to be involved in. He wants Peter, just, I suspect, as he wants me. And as he wants you to be clear about his identity. To, to know who he really, really is. So this morning, as we consider our identity in Jesus, I want us to consider that value, that the importance of really knowing who we are. Are we going to live with labels? This week, I sent several uh, friends uh, an email. And in the email, I invited these friends, um, some of you, I think, to tell me about when during a season of disappointment, when good things were becoming ultimate things and you didn't measure up and thus you felt down, when you cared, cared way too much about what people thought of you, when you had carried into your adulthood little games like I know you are, but what am I? And I ask, during these seasons of disappointment, what are some one-word labels that you've given yourself? And your response, some of you, this is real raw now, okay? Wouldn't I be a bad pastor if I put names by the people here and told them to respond? That'd be horrible and would shrink our numbers like by half. Fat, ugly, lazy, dumb, afraid, jealous. Here's one. Insecure, impatient. I have a friend, she's just a, a little bit younger than I. And when she was a young child and into her teenage years and through her teenage years into early adulthood and really even past that, she had bad acne. And she couldn't control it. She could find nothing to help it. Honestly, her family didn't have money for medicine. She grew her hair long in school. She looked down. She walked the halls, and hallways can be hard places. She was ashamed, and she was embarrassed. She carried this into her adulthood. Shy, socially awkward. She hated crowds, hated going out among the people. She would choose when she would go to the grocery store so as not to be seen by a lot of people. Hair still out, looking down head down. Eventually over time, 
that acne cleared up, but she, part of her story is she still has carried that with her. It fascinates me the way we view ourselves compared, you know where I'm going with this, right? You know where I'm going with this because we preach the gospel here. I'm fascinated by the gap, by the difference in labels that we give ourselves and that God gives us. I didn't email God this week. I just looked at the scripture. Here's what he says about you. This is pretty raw too. Put your name by every one of these. You say, Robert, you don't know about my week. You don't know. Put your name by every one of these. Loved, gifted, called, chosen, perfect, cherished. It's what God says about you. But can I tell you? I have a hard time believing these things about myself. And this week in a moment of difficulty, I I went back, I reverted back to maybe a label I had given myself or something. And that's the thing about labels, they stick, don't they? Have you been to like a church event or corporate function or something with your school recently and you walk in, there's gonna be people you don't know. So what happens, name tag, right? Name tag, put it right there. And what what does it do? The, The goal is for it to stick, for it to stay. And that's what happens with you and I. When we label ourselves, it sticks, it stays with us. I mean, come on, when the acne clears up, hold your head up and be free, right? But you and I have a problem with that. We have a hard time moving on. We have a hard time with God's view of us. And I'm telling you, church, that Jesus, when he came, he came to destroy the gap between the false view of you and the true view of you. In Proverbs 19, 22, it says this, the longing of a heart. This is Solomon. What a person desires is unfailing love. Just focus on that first. What a person desires is unfailing love. Do you believe that is true? I'm, honestly, guys, it's why I have a golden retriever and love him more than anything. Right? Unfailing love. We so desire that, but how are we doing? How are you doing when it comes to unfailing love? I mean, if you're in a love relationship, not trying to single anyone out who's not there right now, but if you're in a loving relationship and you're sitting close to them, just look at them now and say, you fail me. Because you just spoke the truth. It's probably not good for your relationship. But you just spoke the truth. You fail me. Uh, You're looking for unfailing love. And man, it's on the bookstore shelves in romance novels. It's put out in Hollywood movies one after the other. And certainly in our love songs. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Say it with me. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from you. Sounds like somebody needs a restraining order. I don't know. (laughs) Just saying. But we're looking for... We're looking for unfailing love. I mean, I'm, I'm getting old now. I hear that song and I think, oh, I get nostalgic. I love the song. But, you know, when you get cynical, you get older, you're just like, oh, how's that going to work out? That mountain's going to get really high. The valley, trust me, the valley's going to get really low. 
subterranean low, right? And suddenly things are going to keep you from that person. And what really is more injurious, more harmful, more painful, more consequential is that we let the labeling keep us from God's love. And this is how, this is how he sees us. This is the, the label. We're loved. We're, we're called. We're gifted. We're cherished. We're chosen. We're perfect. That doesn't make sense, right? I mean, we're not perfect, are we? Well, positionally, we are. If you read the Gospels, you'll see what Jesus was doing as he came to destroy the gap that separates us and to reconcile us to each other. Uh, he desires that we uh, see ourselves as positionally perfect. Now, practically, who's perfect? None of us. But positionally, we are. And the more we view ourselves the way God sees us, the better we are. I want to give you two fundamental ideas that frame this series. The first one is this about our identity. Your identity is not achieved, it is received. Tough in a performance-based culture, isn't it? I mean, outside of Asian cultures that, that some of us know about, I mean, the American culture is right there at the pinnacle. I mean, there's probably never been a more performance-based culture than ours. And grace is a message we have to preach and preach and preach. If you're a communicator, if you're a teacher of the Bible, if you lead a small group, if you do one-on-one -on -one ministry with other people, you have to look at other angles and ways to preach the grace of God in order to get past people's defenses. We have a hard time. Grace is a gift, and a gift is to be received. But we have a hard time. We have a hard time receiving. Uh, parents have an advantage of this. I think of my children, the youngest one in particular, who when he gets sick, which he did several months ago, and he, you know, I mean, I have to say it, he, when he throws up, and it's just violent. Like really violent, like he doesn't just throw up, but like he starts yelling and it's like demon possession, you know, and his head's spinning and it's just, you know, it's like, oh, and he's asking me questions that I don't know about how much more, how long is this going to happen? How many more times? I'm like, man, I don't know. As I run away and get Susan to come in, right? And, but parents, you know, in this moment or any moment of pain or illness or difficulty or confusion that you would take that from him in a moment. You would take that on yourself to relieve him or her. Romans 5.8, a lot of you know it. Romans 5.8, I'd write that one down under this. Your identity is not achieved, it is received. But God demonstrated his love for us while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The first two words, but God. In other words, this isn't like the world. It's not the world. Every way of loving, every pattern and custom and habit and way in the world is what? I'll love you if you love me. I'll, I'll, I'll come over to you if you're coming to me. But if you step back, I'm stepping back. If you talk about me, I'm going to talk about you. If you betray me, I'm going to betray you. I, I'm waiting on you to get your act cleaned up and cleared up. I'm waiting for you to become who I think you ought to be. And then the love. I will not give and love freely unless I sense that it's coming my way. That's the world's way. But the gospel is different. But God. But God demonstrates his love toward us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is to be received, not achieved. The second idea that I want us to frame this morning in this series of October is with a new identity 
comes a new responsibility. You see, first comes living out our identity in Christ, and then comes our activity for Christ. But you know, I messed that up. I mixed that idea up. Do you ever do that? And then you find yourself serving and giving and trying to pour out your life for the good of others. But it's done out of shame, maybe out of obligation, out of fear. In October, I want to give us four labels that God gives us. I've given you some, but I want to give us four in particular. The first one, the one of today, is ambassador. You are an ambassador. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Here comes the responsibility with this new identity. Here comes the responsibility. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. How hard is that? And though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, here it is, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Bob George, in his great work, Classical Christianity, He talks about how we're all many times just living a half gospel, even those who preach it. In fact, those who preach it often are the ones living the half gospel because we preach it so often. We're dulled by its meaning and its impact. And he says this half gospel, uh, in order for us to understand how we're living with this half gospel, he says, imagine with me that you live in a land and there's a king in the land and the king has given a blanket pardon to all prostitutes. All prostitutes are forgiven. And let's say that you're one of those prostitutes. Would this motivate you to change the way you're living? I mean, think about it. You don't have to fear the sheriff. You no longer have a criminal record. All of your offenses have been erased. But while you're forgiven, does it motivate you to really change your lifestyle and who you are? I think if you look deeper, I think the answer is no. But he says... Go further and picture in your imagination that you are the prostitute and you have been forgiven because you're you're one of many. You've been given a blanket forgiveness. But this king chooses you and says, I want you to be my wife. And now suddenly you are a queen. Does this change your lifestyle? Does this change everything about how you live? And the gospel tells us that you're not just forgiven. Oh, isn't that grand? Isn't that great? You're forgiven, but you're the bride of Christ. You're more beautiful than you ever thought. Now, the Bible is God's inspired book. I believe it with all my heart and all my mind. But it's a funny book, and it's a strange book. 
and it's unconventional in so many ways. There's a, a prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, you may know about Hosea and, a, and a, a prostitute named Gomer. And she was released and she was forgiven, right? But she kept going back to her ways. She kept going back to her ways just as we do. And that church is an identity issue. Not understanding who we really are. Let's no longer live with half a gospel. You are not just forgiven. You've been taken in. And God has a plan for you in his family. And a part of that is, today we're saying, as he says here, is to be an ambassador. Now, an ambassador, by definition, represents a country, but not the country that it's living in. So it lives in one country, right? And represents another as it lives in that country. An ambassador, it seeks peace. It brings hope. It has this ministry of reconciliation. And the scripture gives us the same idea. As ambassadors of Jesus, what does it say? We're called to negotiate peace. We're called to settle disputes. We're called to bring hope and help in when there is hope and help needed. And we're called to tell people, to give people a message that says you can be reconciled to God. There's nothing that you've done that can separate you from his love. And whatever label you're wearing, whatever inner condemnation, whatever, whenever you want to say, I know you are, but what am I? Because you are hurting, the gospel frees you up from that and says you're called to live in a different way. And you can tell people, you and I can tell people, be reconciled to God. Draw near to him. He's drawn near to you. He's bridged the gap. Where are we to be ambassadors? This message of reconciliation, uh, our call to bring shalom, to, to, to negotiate peace, to settle disputes, to offer help. Where are we to be an ambassador? Let me just say, and I say it often here, it starts in the home. The first institution God ordained is the family. And the family ought to be an embassy of heaven. A place where people can run for spiritual immunity. No matter what they've done or where they've been, they will not be judged or condemned, but they'll be reconciled. I wonder today what reconciliation you can bring to your home. What example can you be? I've learned over time that when we experience reconciliation in our home, that others can see that and they can come to us and we can tell them about how they can be reconciled in their home. But we have to continually live that out in our homes. We need it in our workplaces. That's where you spend a good portion of your life in the workplace. Do I need to remind you all that tomorrow's Monday? Oh, I just brought, this, I just brought it down, didn't I? Tomorrow's Monday, you're going to begin a, a heavy work week, and you'll spend 40-plus hours in that workplace. And, and let me give you a clue. People are watching you. They're, they're watching you. And it's a great place to be an ambassador for Christ, to bring re reconciliation, to seek peace, to bring shalom to the workplace. And students need that as well in school. This summer, we tackled six of your hard, hardest questions. And one of those questions early on, we, we tried our best biblically to answer the question, is suicide an unforgivable sin? 
And I was shocked. I was stunned. I was saddened to learn that uh, recently in America, uh, over the last several years, that more people die from suicide than car wrecks. And that the growing demographic for suicide is men in their 50s. I'm sort of getting close. And I do know that not many people, men or women, make it to the halfway point of life without being angry and bitter and cynical. And they're mad at two ex-spouses and four churches and three pastors and 27 people they used to work with. And they're bitter and they're angry and they're cynical and life is just dark and constricting. And knowing some of your stories and knowing some of the pain in your life, I can't help but think how important it is for us to bring comfort and counsel because there's people mulling that over. Is it better to end my life than to live my life? And as corny as it sounds, I found myself walking with some of you in your pain and I wish I could be in every bedroom every morning with anybody that's hurting that bad that wonders if their feet ought to hit the floor and they ought to take on a new day. One of my favorite all-time movies is Dead Poet Society. Some of you know this. Some of you have seen this. I've seen it so many times. But there's this man that's made all of us laugh a whole bunch of times, Robin Williams. He's the, he's the teacher in the movie. And there's this actor named Ethan Hawke. And Ethan Hawke is this shy, socially awkward young man who, who's been living under the demands of an angry dad. And Robin Williams in the movie, some of you recall, he was the one who was offering the comfort and the counsel, the hope and the healing. He was the one saying, hey, you ought to live the good life. Hey, you ought to overcome this distant, detached, authoritative figure that you can never please. That was Robin Williams in the movie. And we learned a year and a half ago that the role was flipped in, in real life. And Robin Williams was the one through physical infirmity, through probably depression, through Parkinson's disease, through circumstantial struggles, said, I would be better off not, not living. I'd be better off dying. I'll, I'll take my own life. And do you know, I say it every so often, I say it periodically here, every barometer, every measurement of progress in this modern world is saying we're getting better. Science, medicine, health, education, technology, comfort, convenience, it's all getting good. Isn't it grand to live in the world we live? But every barometer, every measurement, every indicator of mental health, emotional health is saying we are getting worse. Folks, we are getting far worse. And to be an ambassador is to say that you're, you're not, remember what Paul said, you're, you're forgiven and you're called and you're part of the family and then you are released as a new creation in Christ to say to others that they can have hope. And you and I are called to bring that hope to the world in which we live, to other people, other fellow strugglers who've labeled themselves. One of those hallmark passages that I love and some of you do is Jesus' call. It's invitational language. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Come to me all you or what? You're weary. A lot of you know that verse. Maybe because you know weariness. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, Jesus says. Recently, I stumbled upon a writer 
His name is Jamie, I don't know if we have it, Jamie Tworkowski. And I invite you, here it is, I invite you to write this down. If you're in pain, you know someone who is. To write love on our arms. He founded this in 2006. And his life was affected by more than a couple of women in his life who were cutters, who were going through pain. And he, he writes about how this has got to change. To write love on our arms, you'll see some beautiful, beautiful poetry of people who are in the process of wondering if life is just about their mess and their cocaine-induced, sexually promiscuous, insane, painful lifestyle. Or is there a higher way? Is there comfort? Is there hope? Is there healing? Or do we just have to give in to cynicism? And his idea is that cynicism should never, ever have the last word. That life is not random or empty or meaningless. And that where you are now is not where you will always have to be. And this site is all about rescuing people who are in great pain. And he uses some language in there. He uses the language between a hurricane and a harbor. And that resonates with me because you see, Jesus never had his head in the sand. He never said that you're not going to have trouble. In fact, in John 16, 33, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. There will be a hurricane. It could be a category five where the storms are raging and things are hard and you have to batten down the hatches. You got to wonder if you have the stockpile. You got to wonder if you're going to make it through the storm. And maybe some of you are here today wondering if you can make it through the hurricane. But there is a harbor. And there's a harbor of rest. And so as ambassadors of Christ, we negotiate peace and settle disputes. We give people and offer people spiritual immunity. An embassy of heaven on earth in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our churches, in our small groups. I hope in your community groups, you're sharing more and more of your stories. And coming around each other. And pointing people to the harbor. I really believe Jesus gives rest. And recently in my life, I, a hurricane has blown and it's, it's blown me off my center. It's left me scrambling. And deep inside, the, some of those labels that I've given myself have, coming back, have come back. So what I preach to you today, I'm experiencing in my own life. And I'm telling you, Jesus gives rest. Jesus is the harbor. And even though you want the storm to stop now, that's his call. That's his call. But even in the midst of it, you can find rest. You're an ambassador. You can be a rock in the middle of the hurricane and on the way to the harbor. You can be solid. He can build into your life where you can be steadfast. Would you pray with me?